Sustainability. It's an easy concept to get behind. Who doesn't want a greener planet? The problem? Living sustainably can be inconvenient. Welcome to the Baylands Podcast, a conversation about the global and local strategies that make zero-carbon living achievable. We'll explore how sustainable living, in the form of intentionally designed communities, can actually enhance lifestyle, making life easier and more meaningful, while at the same time reducing our carbon footprint. This is so, to me, exciting, is that we have, we have projects like the Baylands that are coming forward and saying, we can do better and we know how to do better. And there's kind of not only the tools of understanding green building technology and the methods around green building approaches, but it's bigger than that. It's how we think about green nature-based solutions. It's how we think about circular resources such as water and energy and consumption. Hi, I'm Linda Grasso. In this episode, we focus on how we can reimagine development for sustainability, diversity, and equality, talking with urban planner Catherine Perez. Catherine is the Los Angeles City's leader and associate principal with Aura, a global firm dedicated to sustainable development. With her background in community and private real estate development, transportation policy, and urban planning, Catherine is recognized as a thought leader in developing complex public participation strategies that require collaboration among multicultural communities. Catherine is an adjunct associate professor at USC's Saul Price School of Public Policy. She is also working on the Baylands, specifically the design and implementation of the sustainable and mobility aspects of the project. So I want to start by talking about really the way we live. We have become a nation of suburban sprawl and asphalt commercial strip malls, and we are completely reliant on cars. What to you are the biggest negatives? Well, Linda, I think in the last... uh few generations, we definitely have um, developed our communities, our neighborhoods in suburban, exurban developments. And so very disconnected, as as you said, using our cars to get around. And, and I believe what we found in COVID is a very different perspective about what's close to us, what's in walking distance, how can I get to the grocery store by getting on my bike. And COVID really accelerated a change in terms of how we think about our communities and how we think about our neighborhoods. So it's different today than it was even just a few years ago. But even before COVID, as a as a state-of-the-art urban planner who's very focused on sustainability, yes, you had to look out at the world and think, this is not good and how can we change it? Yes, my whole professional life has been one of trying to bring awareness not only to the development community, but also decision makers, policy makers about the, not only the the human toll of sprawl, what it does to our bodies, um, our mental health, our well-being, but also the inequities that are generated through the, that development behavior that um, essentially new investment, new dollars go to those new projects and then what is left behind is essentially um, 
the lack of investment and and disadvantaged communities. So it is a tradition that I think we've now called into question. And today, what I believe is that there's a national and in fact global movement toward much more compact, much more uh, balanced communities that incorporate issues of climate change, issues of resilience and equity. Um, And I think what's now becoming, to me, much more common is a questioning of of kind of development that is uh, lacking uh, responsibility with land, with water, with air, and um, and so I think we've shifted. Were there times in your career earlier in earlier years when you would look out into the world and think this can't continue, and there are viable solutions, and why can't we implement change? Yes, and um, there have been many points in my professional journey, um, having been in real estate development, having been in local government, having also been involved in many of the kind of efforts to shift how we think about growth and and new investments, um, many points at which I, I've tried to pivot um, you know, large regions and, in fact, uh, try to say there's a better way, there's a more responsible way. And the, and, and the path has usually been through the path of cost. It's too expensive to build new communities that are far away, that require new transport, new water, new energy, new everything. And it's much more responsible for us to invest in existing communities and recycle them and and make sure that that reinvestment uh, was equitable. Now, I, I, now there's a realization that those decisions of the past were wrong. Um, they were not only wrong on a kind of, you know, just on a equity level that not everybody could move far away, but it also became a realization around climate and the issue of driving, you know, there was a saying, you know, I'll drive till I qualify, which meant, you know, people in different communities would have to drive far away to afford a home and then drive long distances to get to their jobs. And so, and it usually was people of color that would have to drive till they could qualify for a home. Now, um, there's a realization that that is both unsustainable as well as inequitable and there's a there's a justice component to that. So as we're as we're thinking through now, how those how that develop those development patterns affected um, large scale regions. You know that there's water, that there's impacts on energy consumption, um, there's impacts on land. We have a much different attitude about where we grow, how we grow, and the way in which we grow. And I think what to me is exciting is that there's projects such as the Baylands. Uh, the Baylands is an exciting example of reusing land that was previously disregarded and is being recycled, regenerated, and reintroduced as new communities. And these are places that I think will offer um, generations of today and future generations balanced communities that are sustainable, responsible, and healthy for them. And what makes the Baylands so exciting is that it's an example of what can be done nationwide. I mean, so many major metropolitan cities have infill that's just sitting there that has sometimes some existing infrastructure, sometimes a lot, 
Well, and what is a challenge, I think, is we have this attitude of the, you know, if it's not if it's not performing, if it doesn't look good, we just move to the next new, you know, new place, and we discard the old stuff. There's a different attitude now about how we can reinvest and how we can think about those places that we turned our backs on many, many years ago, introducing transit, introducing housing and, and homes, introducing opportunities for people to to work in these places. And again, COVID has really reshaped and reframed how we think about place. So no longer are we at home, are we just, you know, uh, or at just in our office. Our home has become, in many cases, our office. Our home has become a place where we can also grow foods if you have a yard or if you have a community garden, you can then share in that um, kind of shared community experience. It's a very different way to think about how not only existing cities, but cities that have um, opportunities to, to kind of rebuild. And to me, that is where we are today. We're talking about circular economies. We're talking about uh, these, these, these opportunities to look back, look in, and say, those are good bones. There's good bones. They've got connected you know, streets. There's um, infrastructure. Perhaps it needs to be rebuilt, redone, but there's good bones. And in planning and development conversations, those are always the kind of foundational components of, of um, good communities and, and meaningful communities, walkable communities. And, and to me, you know, places that are trying to reclaim um, areas and rebuild in areas. And, and that's an example, again, of Baylands where, where you're coming back and you're saying, we're going to reclaim, we're going to bring new attitudes about sustainability, about energy, about water, about transport, and how you get around, how we even think about mobility, walking and biking and using, you know, shared vehicles um, to basically get to uh, general services. Given all the benefits of infill redevelopment, why is there such pushback? Well, because um, if there's anybody living around it and anybody that currently resides around it, um, they there's a lot of resistance from NIMBYs, the not-in-my-backyard people who say, well, if you're going to reuse that, it's going to introduce new traffic, new people, and, and, um, and there's a resistance to that. But there's also another consideration that if there's people living in those uh, dilapidated um, and disinvested communities, that uh, gentrification, displacement is real. And so what if the issues have to be one of inclusion, uh, not of exclusion, but making sure that as these areas are rebuilt and again reintroduced, that we have a very different attitude about how we stitch those places back together. Because it's important that these balanced communities, these very kind of rich communities, have also diversity of peoples. Now, you can't really design for you know diversity, but by the nature of things, um, the way that there's such a need for housing, for places that offer parks and open space and 
And this is what I think the magic is with Balance is that there's housing for working families. There's housing for low-income families. There's a balance of housing types that give the entry point for various peoples in our communities to find safe, adequate, and meaningful housing. So it sounds like what you're essentially saying is that we as a society, although we may not want it in our backyard and we don't want the years of construction and the dust and all that, we have to learn to see the greater purpose. Well, some people will say that, Linda. Some people will say, yes, we should be uh, preserving open space. We should be preserving the land that hasn't been developed and, and for future generations. But then there's another way to think about it. Um, I don't want to have to pay for that new development. I don't want to have to pay taxes to support that new growth. Um, so, and that's a reality. And then there's a lot of new people to the uh, that are coming forward saying, I don't want to have that, you know, external growth because the driving cost and, and carbon costs and all of the other things that I have to live with are going to be something that that me, myself, and I um, have to reconcile with. And so there's there's now been this kind of, there used to be a trade-off. It's like, well, you know, maybe you're not here and, and I don't have to have additional people near me so you can be way out there. But now those what we used to what we call external external costs are becoming internalized, and those internal costs are now beginning to peak over to the point where people are saying, you know, we need to make more efficient use of land. We need to make more efficient use of water, of resources, limited natural resources, and we need to do it responsibly, sustainable with sustainable practices. We're getting much smarter at these things, and what to me is exciting is that the conversation, when I first started my career about 25 years ago, the conversation, it was a very lonely um, situation. Today, there is uh, a realization and a kind of coming of age, I think, that there's a welcomeness that in rebuilding, reconstituting these places, reclaiming these places, that we can make them better, we can make them more sustainable, and we can we can bring, I think, a whole bunch of new techniques that we know work in other countries and we can bring them here and um, introduce them as meaningful options. It's interesting because you'll still talk occasionally to a baby boomer or even someone older who does not believe in climate change, but you talk to anybody uh, in their 30s, 20s, teenagers, children, I mean, they have their heads wrapped around it. And they're they're getting it from a super early age, and they are believers. I mean, you can't not think that that isn't going to transfer into sustainable development. In addition to um, the work I do uh, at an international engineering design firm, I, I I'm very blessed to be in an environment where these conversations are real and the projects are real. And um, is such as Balance, it's a real project, but. Um, what is very clear to me is that uh, the new, the, I also teach, so I'm also an adjunct associate professor at USC in the real estate and urban planning school. And so I have these, you know, ver- these young professionals that are asking really hard questions about why is it um, that we're widening freeways? Why is it that we aren't completely shifting faster over to electric and hydrogen technology. They're 
questioning assumptions and really the value statement of, well, we need to do this for, you know, prosperity. We need to do this for growth. And they question the premise that we need to do use old practices to, to reach those, our aspirations. They question them. So I think, and what I've seen is that the demand for, again, sustainable, decarbonized projects that really um, not only can be evaluated on metrics, because we know how to measure these things, but they're also representing their values. These, these, you know, th this represents their values, their, their, um, how they think about themselves, that they want to be in a place, they want to live in a place that demonstrates and exhibits um, who they see themselves as. So to me, that that rich, again, those communities where you see that kind of richness on the streets, you see that vibrancy, that is the magic, that's kind of the secret sauce that makes these communities super special. And the, that comes from these, I would say, the, the younger generations, but it's not that far behind. There are these professionals coming out of schools, coming out of graduate schools, going into the, the workforce and saying, you know, uh, we want options and we're going to expect and demand options. And it's up to those in the planning, design, development community to respond to them. So this concept of the 15-minute city upon which the Baylands is being built, um, we're seeing these these cons uh, walkable cities, whether they're five minutes or 20 minutes, um, all around the, the world. I live in the San Fernando Valley, uh, suburb of Los Angeles, lived here for 25 years, have had to use a car for virtually everything. The last year we lived in Manhattan Beach, which is a walkable city. And I never knew the pleasures of that, the sheer pleasures of being able to walk to the grocery store, walk to the post office, go out to dinner and walk home. I never knew that. I never appreciated that until now. So how do we communicate that to people who don't know what they don't know? Well, I think you, you, you've just... You've just provided a very real example of of what what is I think a very kind of it's it's a growing attitude about where people want to live. People don't necessarily they don't want to have cars. They don't want to own two cars. They don't want to some don't want to own a car. And the projects like as you cited Baylands, where they'll have a uh, basically a, sh a car sharing program. There's going to be uh, a Baylands Park where you basically can bike the entire distance of the entire project. You can bike it, walk it in this beautiful greenway. These are things where people are saying, wow, you know, I travel, I travel to Paris. I traveled, traveled to Barcelona. I traveled to Amsterdam and I got on a bike. I used a train. I, um, I walked everywhere. And then they come back home and it's like, you know, we get back into our cars. And so, um, and I live in Pasadena in LA County and I, I uh, live in a very connected older neighborhood, so I am able to walk in places. I am able to enjoy that. But that should be shared by very by all communities. I don't care if you're, you know, if you're low income or if you're a very successful person, everyone should have an opportunity to experience and live in those um, uh, those neighborhoods. And you know this this notion of having, uh, strong physical um, connections to place. 
this sense of belonging, Linda, is really important. And I, what I, I believe is that that projects like and you know the Baylands is seeking to achieve this, where you can walk to to pick up lunch, and you can then walk to a park, and then you can bike to your work. And by the way, it's also connected to regional transit, so you can get on Caltrain, you can get to Muni. You know, you have uh, means to um, get to other venues and other other things that you need to need to get to. I mean, these places are coming to realization. This is what to me is super exciting is that we are now understanding how to finance these things, how to plan these things, how to do them in ways that is super innovative. And it's now much more to me, um, it's much more realistic. I think there was a time when people would say, oh, we have to go to you know, some other country to experience, or like downtown New York, right? And it's like, well, we don't, we're not New York. We we're you know, we are who we are. And I think what's so exciting is that places like Baylands offer those variety of experiences that you can live in different kinds of ways and you can experience a place in different, you know, you don't have to get in a car um, just to do your basic, get your basic needs um, uh, fulfilled. So um, it's also to me not to, it's important to remember how critical the issue around net zero communities um, this is now part of the regular conversation in the work I do on uh, major infrastructure projects. So how can we get to net zero? How can we make sure that we're not carrying, you know, excessive carbon costs in projects? These are real. So when you think about, you know, getting a loaf of bread or um, a very expensive dozen of eggs nowadays, um, when you go and do those things, you know, there's costs, there's carbon costs, there's environmental costs associated with those eggs and those, the loaf of bread and milk going to the grocery store. In places like Baylands, the concept is very different. There is a shared um, economy that there is, uh, that you don't have, we don't have to naturally assume that everything has to be driven in on, on the back of a truck and that you have to drive in your car to go pick it up. And so we're at a, a tipping point where projects like Balin's will demonstrate we can do it here, we can do it better, we don't have to absorb all of these, you know, environmental costs. Um, we can actually, importantly, plan for future generations that are going to be in high-quality um, ex- communities. How do you develop so that people from all races, ethnicities, members of the LGBTQ community, how do we develop so that there are, you know, there's range in that and that we are we are mingling with one another and getting to know each other and living together? Mm-hmm. Well, people are people. And so uh, we all look for, I think, pretty basic similar things of safe neighborhoods, of places where we can enjoy natural environments, of um, places where we have options in terms of how we want to shop, where we want to go to eat, um, where we want to work. And the thing that is very dynamic, um, and you see it in Baylands, you see it in other projects where there is an intentional um, kind of development program that, that 
includes low income, that includes housing for working families, and um, and provides entry points for that you know socially the, the the kind of diversity of peoples, right? So you've got your first year school teacher together with a high tech you know business owner, or you've got that mix of peoples and. In, and and we're, I'm just speaking about California, the diversity of our state is incredibly rich. Um, and so creating those, those um, the, how, the homes for different folks to enjoy is going to immediately create a, a, a kind of range of, of cultures, of, of peoples who are going to be interested in participating and being part of that community. And in the Baylands, they have absolutely thought that through, is how do we make sure that the experience um, is not only physical, but there's an emotional belonging, there's a place of connectedness. And that's what I was saying, is that people will choose to live in a place that, that emulates their values. Now, not everybody can do that, but when you provide housing, when you provide homes for low-income working families and individuals you know, maybe it's a, a single room, a studio, right? But when you provide that range, what happens is you do invite a diversity of people, an inclusive environment, um, and along with that comes the cultural, racial um, diversity that is, I think, the the stuff of, of great neighborhoods. Our population has shifted. I think after World War II, we were mostly uh, married people with kids. And now there are more single people than there ever have been before. We have a need there, but we aren't filling it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And, and, and that is a, that is an issue. And we found this in, in a number of, of disasters that when, um, when disasters hit, either heat waves or natural disasters, it's those people who are living by themselves and mostly seniors that are living by themselves that are most at risk for... Um, physical harm. They, they don't have access to their med- medical services and, and pharmacy and stuff like that. And so resilient communities, resilient places where there is um, a knowingness of your neighbor, there's a knowingness of like the store owner or, or um, the, the person who maybe brings you your food or maybe that you go to shop for. I mean, there's a knowingness that you have in these communities. And it's in those neighborhoods where you have the highest levels of, of resili- uh, resiliency. Um, and and what I, I love about the Balance Project is it provides this. It provides these open spaces where people get to come together, where there's these um, bazaars in these outdoor markets that will enable this connectedness within the community. Again, it's, it's, it's the holistic, it's the entire ecosystem of how people live, how people um, experience um, their their world. It's also how they experience each other, and that is that is the stuff that we have found can guarantee people's livelihood and their well being. They have a high quality of life, um, and they're living by themselves. And you know they get to meet their neighbors and they get to do things with their neighbors, and they feel a richness. Um, that is part of that that community uh, that they've that they joined. I want to talk about 
the concept of zero carbon community. That is something that Bayland, the Baylands is going to be. Mm-hmm. What exactly is that? And how does it help climate change? Well, this is so, to me, exciting, is that we have we have projects like the Baylands that are coming forward and saying, we can do better, and we know how to do better. And there's kind of not only the tools of understanding green building technology and the methods around green building approaches, but it's bigger than that. It's how we think about green nature-based solutions. It's how we think about circular resources such as water and energy and consumption. And what is what is truly dynamic is we're going to have Balin's saying, you know, we're going to take our waste and we're going to create, you know, alternative fuels. We're going to take water and we're going to create energy. We're going to take wind. We're going to take solar. We know how much traditional development and traditional development practices cost in terms of carbon. By being a net zero community, you're saying that we respect the earth, we respect people, we respect the resources, we respect the investments, and we are going to demonstrate that by introducing practices that allow our people, our people-centered approach of mobility, of complete neighborhoods, connected neighborhoods, and allowing, to me, a very clear message about what's a priority. That and also 30% of the Baylands will be green space. Well, yes, and that balance with nature, right? The balance with nature, that there's going to be these uh, green uh, shared green streets that you can bike, you can walk, and um, you'll be able to use an EV car share if you want. I mean, but the Baylands also has community gardens. I mean, there's this notion, if if I haven't said it clearly, a shared economy that really is based to me on this uh, this notion of uh, complete community, complete neighborhood, uh, the balance that is being introduced and how the balance between development and nature. And you and 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 previously, Linda, what you had to have was like development over nature. And what I balance has done with incredible sensitivity and intentionality is to ensure that there are practices that enable people to minimize waste, minimize the use of energy, minimize the use of water, but also the buildings themselves, how they're constructed, the way in which they're reusing some of the materials that are on site already. So that's in in the planning world, that's called the circular economy. That's where we're taking stuff and we're reusing it. We're repurposing it. Um, and that is a, a message that Balins can say, we are a net zero community. We are bringing these approaches and strategies into reality. Touching on the ecological aspects of the Baylands, I feel like we as a society have lost touch with nature and the benefits of nature. I mean, yeah. you think about feeling better, we get a therapist, right? But being able just to access nature and the outdoors easily and quickly. Well, and that's, I mean, this you're talking about your mental health and your physical health and your spiritual health. I mean, these are things that... Uh, psychologists and other people uh, who are evaluating post-COVID trauma. And what they're saying is, 
you know, we all have to recognize what we just went through and how we need to shift and recalibrate how we organize our day, that we have to introduce natural environments, that we need to have access and exposure to the outdoors. And Baylands does that. I mean, it's you're out your front door that you have all this green space. You, you're in the bay, in the bay, but you're right next to the water. Um, and the introduction of natural environment into projects at the scale of Baylands. I mean, the scale should not be underestimated. This is exciting um, because it's going to be it's it's going to be one where the impact is is phenomenal and generational. Um, but the open space is is fundamental to your physical, mental well-being. And we understand those relationships. And being able to live in a, in a place that offers that to you at your front door is, a, um, I think, exactly where we need to go as planners, as developers, as designers. That's where we need to be... Um, kind of thinking about the future developments. And I'm excited by Baylands being um, such a, I think, pioneering project and bringing all these pieces together. When you close your eyes and you take a moment and you imagine, let's say, 100 years from now, how do you envision that we're going to be living? I believe we're going to be in a, in a place where we will be much better stewards of the land we're going to be much better stewards of water, of energy. We're going to understand because technology will have helped us. Digital and otherwise will help us be much more efficient with limited resources. We're going to be a very equitable and socially just place. I don't think we'll have poverty. I don't. I know we won't have homelessness. We will not have people without food or means or resources. I am an idealist, um, but I I believe that we know how to solve these things. I know, I believe also, we know that we can. And and also, I think I have the advantage, the advantage of teaching. And I know that my students are, are going to do it. I know that my own kids will do it. And um, so we're just basically setting the table so that they can then get up and go, you know, basically change the course of history. And I'm excited by that because in a hundred years, this place is going to be really damn cool. 